Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, remind us how wonderful your chat room is. We have an exceptional chat room, and that is for CB specifically, because we were just chatting about it in the chat room. It's a great group of people. Uh, they always bring something fresh to the table. You know, they always give me some other insights, so I learn a lot from them, and we have lots of fun too. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, in this week's spotlight, I wish to dis- discuss psychographics. For a long time, sellers of wares and ideas have relied on demographics for their targeted marketing efforts. Demographics reveal the statistical data of a population, especially those showing average age, income, education, and so forth. So if the target audience is female between the ages of 20 and 40, say, it is demographics that identify where to go with advertising dollars, whether this ad is designed to peddle a product or win a vote. Now, by way of further identification, we add the science of psychographics. Psychographics uses demographic information to determine the attitudes and tastes of a particular segment of a population. Essentially, psychographics seeks to discover the so-called five big traits referred to in the acronym OCEAN. Those five are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, introversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Breaking each of the five down, we can understand why they are important to those who wish to convince us of our likes, desires, and needs. Openness refers to one's desire for new experiences, as well as providing a measure of creativity. Conscientiousness is a measure of care taken in life. Extroversion, introversion, is the assessment of sociability. Are you comfortable in crowds or do you prefer to be in a smaller group and or alone? Agreeableness evaluates the dimension of kindness and caring. Are you empathetic and do you sympathize with others? Finally, neuroticism considers how you handle emotion. Are you stable or do you yell at others when upset? How do you react in stressful situations? Okay, now gather this information from the demographic you seek most to exploit, and you theoretically have everything you need to know in order to persuade that group. And this is exactly what Cambridge Analytics did for President Trump's campaign. In the words of Professor Jonathan Albright, quote, This is a propaganda machine. It's targeting people individually to recruit them to an idea. It's a level of social engineering that I've never seen before. They're capturing people and then keeping them on an emotional leash and never letting them go. Close quote. In my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, I dedicated a full chapter to exactly this sort of metadata engineering. And the devices are not only becoming more sophisticated, but also much more widely deployed. The strategy behind social engineering or the engineering of consent, as Edward Bernays titled it in his essay of 1947, remains that of control of the masses. But the tactics are ever-evolving. You should know this. Remember today's spotlight the next time you answer some silly quiz, the kind ostensibly designed to inform you of what Hollywood figure you're most like, or what animal you are, or what characteristic is your strongest, etc. You are providing information that can, and undoubtedly in some way, 
be used to win your consent. The goal is ultimately to get you to do what they want you to do because you think it's both your idea and a great one. And once again, I ask you my two favorite questions. What was your last original thought? And is this free will? Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, this entire subject is so much more important than most people think. You know, the type of comments we always hear is, well, who cares if somebody else knows what my favorite cereal is or my favorite grocery store? Um, but what we are learning is all these little bits of information do make a huge difference. And if you don't want to be, you know, just a puppet on a string, allowing someone else to move you around, if you want to learn what life is about, if you want to learn what you, who you really are, then this information does become incredibly vital. I remember when we were doing, you know, some of the pre-publicity work for Gotcha, and, you know, some of the stuff I was writing about Gotcha was around the elections. And it, my prediction then was it's not the best candidate that wins. It's the person who has the best marketing ability. And the marketing ability now comes from all of this information, well, all of these tactics. You, you know, the latest evolution, I suppose, in terms of tactics would be Cambridge Analytics. But let's mm -hmm. not forget that President Obama used an elite team of social psychologists to do very much the same thing. So, all right, it's just a new world we live in. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Elaine Clayton and we discussed stream drawing to enhance intuition and creativity. Russell wrote, great show with Elaine Clayton. I bought her book and I'm going to try her stream drawing. Angela wrote, stream drawing sounds like so much fun. I must try this with my students. Moving on, last week's spotlight discussed mass hypnosis. Using a storyline developed by Richard Bach, a stage hypnotist demonstrated how belief could imprison a person. The spotlight becomes my weekly blog, and once posted, I received this feedback from Marla. Actually, Dr. Marla. Dear Dr. Eldon, as your university colleague and a practitioner using hypnotic inductions to assist clients in achieving positive life changes, in my view, your blog post has negative images and word descriptions being attached to a hypnosis experience, which is possibly not a good idea. As practitioners of hypnosis, it is our responsibility to prevent negative stereotype descriptions of hypnosis from being posted on the Internet or in the media. Please tell me that you have removed your recent blog post. My response, no, and I won't remove it. Sorry. Stage hypnosis is real and a major form of entertainment in Las Vegas. There is a difference between stage hypnosis and hypnotherapy. People get that. Hypnosis is defined in a courtroom where I have testified as an expert witness as a state of suggestibility. All sorts of people are going through their lives convinced of this and that based on some suggestion made by the media, a peer, a fear, and so forth. That's a fact of life, and I will not retract what I wrote. Genevieve wrote, I love the analogy with hypnosis. It makes it very concrete how we allow our beliefs to limit us in many ways. Jan wrote, I have learned and enjoyed a calmer, more confident life thanks to your Intertalk CDs. Thank you for all the time and work you put into your CDs. They have made me think with confidence and courage. Well, thank you, Jan. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, one I've been really looking forward to, based on a, 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 just a fantastic book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable, with our guest, Dr. Daniel Shapiro. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Daniel L. Shapiro, Ph.D., is a world-renowned expert on the psychology of conflict resolution. Named one of Harvard's top 15 professors by the Harvard Crimson, he is founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program and regularly advises everyone from hostage negotiators to families in crisis, disputing CEOs to clashing heads of state. 
He has launched successful conflict resolution initiatives in the Middle East, Europe, and East Asia, and developed a conflict management program that now reaches one million youth across more than 20 countries. He makes regular media appearances, including on NPR, Fox News, and BBC, and was the focus of a New York Times Magazine feature article on negotiation. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Daniel Shapiro. Thank you so much. It's great to be talking with you. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I'm really excited about this. Your book is just a, you know, it is, I think everybody needs to read it. You heard today's spotlight, Professor. Is the use of metadata mining, such as what we see being done by organizations like Cambridge Analytics, anything other than a nuanced form of negotiation? I mean, after all, if the use of the data leads us to a compromise or capitulation, does that not also become a covert means of negotiation? I, I agree with your point. I think any time we are interacting with somebody else for some purpose, we are negotiating. And, you know, and I think people often don't even realize the extent to which they are negotiating in their everyday lives. You know, someone might casually or flippantly at work ask you a question, you say yes or no, you've just taken part in a negotiation, you didn't even realize it. So I think your point is very well taken about the, these notions of metadata uh, analytics. Um, it goes beyond my understanding a bit, you know, how it all really happens, but I think you're right. It is a negotiation of a certain kind. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, Professor, in your mind, what is the difference between negotiation and manipulation? Or is there any real difference? I mean, the the Uh, aim of negotiation is to convince someone to give up something. And if so, isn't that a form of the art of manipulation? Well, I, I, I used to have on my door a uh, little poster and it was from one of the harvard undergraduate negotiation groups and uh it had a picture of uh it was like a princess and a witch or something like that and it said on it shall i use my negotiation skills today for good or for evil (laughs) and i think you can negotiation you can use it to make the world a better place you can use negotiation to make the world a worse place and uh, you know, my own efforts are in the former to the extent I can, um, but but yeah, absolutely, it can be used in either direction. <laughs> I suppose in a real sense, then, our interactions, period, I mean, a psychotherapy would be manipulation of some form or another, wouldn't it? Well, that's, well I, I suppose <laughs> there, there's uh, maybe, you know, it depends upon the kind of psychotherapy and how transparent the therapist is. You know, if you have a very transparent therapist who's explaining his or her every intention may not be as much manipulation as it is social change, you know. Okay, um, well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting thought, though. And I think manipulation, obviously, has a somewhat negative connotation. I it think does. we're all actively manipulating our lives in some sort of way, but maybe not negatively. <laughs> and hopefully you're right, may, not negatively. I I have to ask this before we really, well, actually, this comes from your book, but I want to dive into your book here in a minute. Sometimes negotiation fails because one party becomes upset with the other, and then they become obstinate, and they actually seek revenge. Indeed, I mean, I've seen car dealers get really furious with someone that knew what they were doing, and then that ends the possibility of the deal. I look yeah. out into what's going on in current politics in Washington, D.C. today, and, and, and it suggests to me that there's a bit of get-even mentality overriding common sense mm-hmm. on on many yep. issues. So explain to us, what are the ups and downs of revenge or outright obstinate obstructionism when it comes to negotiation? Yeah, I, I, I mean, looking at something like the way Washington, D.C. is operating right now, They've fallen prey to what I believe is the most essential obstacle to effective negotiation. And, and it's what I call the tribes effect. And this is a mindset of division, you know, where you, you, you're encountering a problem, you're trying to negotiate something, but all of a sudden, the moment you feel threat from the other side, the relationship changes. It's no longer both of us working together, the Republicans, the Democrats working together. It now becomes my tribe versus your tribe, us versus them. 
to me, the mindset becomes the most powerful impediment. Uh, that mindset becomes the most powerful impediment to effective work. Uh, you, you've automatically cast anything the other says as problematic and illegitimate. Your perspective becomes self-righteous, and you have this huge you know, chasm, this gap between you and the other side. When, when you, I mean, I guess that gives rise to a two-part question. When you attempt to negotiate with people that are in that place, um, what do you find as a starting point? And then, you know, how important are the words that you use? I mean, our words today are so emotionally laden. One side might say illegal alien and the other uh, undocumented person. And, you know, it's like these terms or these phrases they lock us at a great distance from one another and make it impossible sometimes. The words are absolutely important. And I think the overriding, uh, I'd say beyond the words, is the overriding mindset that we bring to the negotiation. Uh, and, and again, I think people typically walk in and assume in the negotiations the other is the enemy, the adversary. Well, that's just not true. Uh, in the United States, as an example, there are so many shared interests. You know, people want to feel, we want the, the citizens of the United States to feel, uh, to have, you know, well-being catered to, to and cared for. Um, so health care is important. It's a, certainly an issue that both Republicans and Democrats would agree on. How do we deal with it? Are we going to treat the other side as an enemy or as a partner? And, and I think it's that mind shift that becomes so critical. You know, to turn the conflict so that it's no longer me versus the other side, to shift it. So it's now, look, we have a shared problem. How do we ensure the health and well-being of the people in the United States? Let's work side by side together, Democrats and Republicans, and try and figure this thing out. Um, So that at at the end of the day, it's not Republicans or Democrats winning, but it's the people of the United States who are winning in terms of their health, as an example. So I think the the mindset is crucial. And certainly there are a number of tactics that one can do to execute that mindset. But it, it's that notion that we are all in this together that I think is the essence. Do, do you think our legal system, its adversary nature, I think of people that you know sit down uh, with an arbiter as a case in point, uh, but without the arbiter, two attorneys and two clients, maybe it's a divorce or maybe it's a contract settlement, and they do see one another as... Uh, as opposition, as enemies, as you say, because of that system, that, you know, adversarial yeah. approach that is taken in our legal system. Do you think that has anything to do with the mindsets that, that we see, you know, not just in Washington, but everywhere else? Oh, absolutely. You're, it's a great point. The legal system is, you know, to a large extent, by its very nature, an adversarial system. The judge sits on a high podium, listens to both sides, says to one side, you're right, says to the other side, you're wrong, and that's that. Uh, it, it, it can take years, it can take decades to try and resolve some of these legal conflicts, but it is absolutely adversarial in its essence, typically. At the same time, most of the litigation, you know, most legal issues get resolved out of court through settlement, through negotiation. So, you know, the judge isn't the only person affecting uh, legal outcomes, a lot of it happens behind closed doors through these settlements. And there, we've been actively working, myself and colleagues around the world, training uh, lawyers, training students you know, to, who are going to be in the legal profession, training them in these skills of cooperative negotiation so that they can more effectively come to an outcome that serves the better interests of each of the clients. All right. What do we have to do to get you into D.C. talking to both sides of the aisle? Uh, I, I welcome it. You know, I absolutely welcome it. You know, I think it's, it's imperative right now. It truly is. Because I, I think in D.C. this is you know, tribalism at its worst, uh, where it's an echo chamber on each side. There's no or very little communication between the sides. The partnership is within, not between sides, you know. You know, I I don't want to go down the political side, but when you say that, the 
President Trump's address this week was, I think, an outstanding example. There were Democrats that didn't stand for the widow of our seal. You know, it was like, wait a minute, I understand you objecting to a tonic use of Obamacare as opposed to Mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act. I understand that, you know, but I don't understand the other. It, It really, they really do need you, sir. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I think in, in, in negotiating the non-negotiable, one of the chapters in there is on how do you negotiate the sacred? And what happens when people feel an assault on the sacred? And my sense is that for you know, a number of people who observed the, um, the actions you're talking about, it felt like an assault on the sacred, that, that the military and you know, the fact that this uh, soldier um, died you know, in the duty for the country— uh, that becomes the soldier, and his actions become say, a sacred part of the national narrative. And in that sense, to not stand, uh, it sounds like it was perceived by many to be an assault on the sacred. Yeah. What what other um, things impede our... I mean, why do we get stuck in conflict? Uh, other than what we've discussed, Professor Shapiro? Sure. So, in the book, I talk about these things, I, these emotional forces that tend to come into play the moment our identity starts to feel threatened. So you can imagine a couple having a conflict, and all of a sudden the one feels deeply offended by the other. You can imagine Israelis and Palestinians trying to negotiate, and all of a sudden one threatens the identity, identity of the other. The moment our identity feels threatened, we tend to, we, we tend to get stuck in a number of emotional forces. I call these things the five lures of the tribal mind. The five emotional dynamics that tend to pull us downward. Flesh those out for us, if you would, okay? Sure. So the first of these is what I call vertigo. Uh, And and by vertigo, what I mean, just imagine the last time you were in a difficult conflict situation. You know, again, it could be with family, it could be at work. Vertigo is when you get just so utterly consumed in that conflict situation that you can think of nothing else other than that conflict and other than that evil perpetrator who has caused you all of this grievance. That's vertigo. And, and, so and you're just, you just locked on to him with solid emotion. It's what, anger or, or righteous indignation, something like that. Absolutely. It, it could be any of those kinds of deeply felt emotions. And, and the twist to all of this is that we, we, we start to lose uh, our awareness of our everyday reality and of our bigger purpose. All of a sudden, all I can, you know, I might get into a conflict at work with a colleague. I get into that vertigo. I drive home at the end of the day. I see my wife, my kids. But I might be home in body, but my mind, my heart, I'm still at work. I'm in vertigo. You know, so right. vertigo transports our consciousness, in a sense, in terms of both space and time. You know, you can look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each side, on some level, isn't living just in the present. Each side's living in the past, and that past is part of the present, whether it's 45, 48 years ago, or 500 years ago. They're in vertigo. There's a shift in time and space and ultimately in consciousness, and it makes it so much more difficult to actually extricate ourselves from conflict once we fall prey to this emotional whirlwind of vertigo. The neurochemical bath must be really interesting. What's number two? Well, no, Go ahead. Go it. ahead. I didn't mean it, to cut it, you off, Professor. You want no, to comment no, 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 no. on neurochemicals, please? Yeah, I did, actually, because to me it's more than just a fight-or-flight phenomenon. Um, it's, it's something that's not necessarily short-lived. So, you know, so in other words, in Northern Ireland, as the communities were suffering in the height of the troubles, day in and day out, they were, in a sense, in this place of vertigo. They could not see past or beyond the conflict. Uh, so, so it, but I don't think there was a flooding of neurochemicals day in and day out. It really was a mindset in itself that embedded in the minds of the people, much like we, you know, we experience here in the United States. Right. I just think, you know, cortisol recognizes the danger, you know, so we start bathing that way. You know all that whole story. We have a hard break coming up. Um, Okay. When we come back, let's pick up the next four of these if we can. 
We're speaking with Professor. Thank you, sir. We're speaking with Professor Daniel Shapiro about his life and book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable. I'm going to tell you this is a fantastic read. We all negotiate all the time. You you know, I I talk to you about many things every week. Uh, I'm going to tell you this is uh, this is a book I want you to read. Go get Negotiating the Negotiable. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, DanShapiroGlobal.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest today discussing how to handle emotions during a negotiation. So if you're not in the chat room, get on over there. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your inner talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Daniel Shapiro about his life and book, Negotiating the Non-Negotiable. I'm going to tell you once again, you want to go get this book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website, danshapiroglobal.com. As one word, danshapiroglobal.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. By now you know music psychology is a new area of research for me, and it has practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, we just played some of the Grateful Dead, Not Fade Away. 
Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? I love your questions. Sure. So, I, you know, when your producer asked, what's your favorite piece of music, that it did come to mind. Fade, not Fade Away by the Grateful Dead. I play guitar. I can't say I'm a very good guitarist, but I played about 30 years ago in Eastern Central Europe. I was building a program on conflict management for youth. And I remember the way that we were able to best communicate with one another was in the evenings, the guitar in front of a campfire over music. And I remember sitting there with, you know, kids. I was probably about 18 years old then, working with kids who were everywhere from like, what, uh, probably 7 to 17. And this was one of the songs I most remember singing around the campfire sort of going crazy singing, you know, you know, my love's not going to fade away, or whatever the lyrics are. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, but it, but it, it had, I think it has that deeper meaning to it. It also has the beat, uh, which to me is sort of like a heartbeat rhythm. And uh, so there's life to it and energy to the song. So and I taught it to my youngest now, my five-year-old boy, uh, Liam, and he and I now sing it, and he strums on his guitar, and I strum on mine, and we go crazy over the song. So these are my random thoughts on that song. <laughs> How wonderful. What a great story. Music does have the ability to bridge all kinds of communication gaps. That's absolutely for certain. All right. Let's get back to, you know, the five emotional forces that pull us into conflict. We have the first one, vertigo. Next. So next is what Sigmund Freud originally called the repetition compulsion. And, and this is the basic idea that we all suffer from, that we tend to repeat the same dysfunctional patterns of behavior again and again and again and again, even though we know we should not do those things. Sort of the classic example is the, the, the family members, let's say a husband and wife, in the midst of a conflict, and one knows, let's say, uh, the, 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 I'll say the husband here, <laughs> the husband okay. knows that he should not say or do, you know, say some certain kinds of words to his spouse. He knows he shouldn't walk away, but there's something inside of that person that just pulls him or her to actually do the behavior they know they shouldn't do. That's the repetition compulsion. Right. And it happens just as much in the international sphere and in the business sphere as it does in the home sphere, where we know what we're supposed to say rationally, you know, but emotionally we get moved in a different direction. And the big challenge is how do we resist that repetition compulsion? And the most fundamental answer to it, become aware. You know, starting today, for, for your listeners, be more conscious. The next time you're in a conflict, be conscious of the pattern of conflict between you and the other side. Do you tend to aggress very quickly? Or do you regress? <laughs> do you tend to... Uh, problem solve maybe too quickly rather than trying to understand the other side first. What's the pattern? Do you withdraw? And, and, and the moment you're more aware of that pattern, now you have power over that pattern because you can decide, do you want to reenact that same old pattern or do you want to try to resist? Yeah, that's, to me, and, and I mean, I just kind of think of that as a, a form of mindfulness, being constantly aware of not not just, you know, my own thoughts, but the patterns of my behavior and evaluating those in a non-judgmental way, uh, determining whether or not I want to maintain that behavior, you know, a cost-benefit basis, if nothing else. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think it's it's, it's the mindful awareness, you know, you becoming aware of that which you typically unconsciously enact. And then I think there's a second step, which is asking yourself, well, what should I do? How can I, you know, do I want to broaden my behavioral repertoire? And if so, how? Right. So, you know, so just to give you an example, you take two people at work who typically get into conflict. Maybe one of them gets very emotional and likes to engage and scream and yell. And the other person wants to just resolve this thing right away. <laughs> Let's just problem solve. Now you have a problem because you have the problem solver who wants to resolve it and you have the emotional, you know, dynamite person who wants to explode neither side's getting their interests met. If they keep in that pattern, they're going to continually be in mutually reinforcing dysfunctional systems, bad repetition. <laughs> One thing
thing that could be done as an example, let's say the person who's typically a problem solver, you know, my advice to that person might be, you know what? Before you go and try and problem solve with the emotional dynamite colleague, just go to the bathroom. <laughs> Take 10 minutes in the bathroom. Let that other person get their composure a little bit more. Then come back. And, and this is based upon a real case. I was consulting with someone, and this person said, that, said to me, I'm not sure I can do that. I, I have such this intense desire to resolve and to heal. I said, you know what? That's the lore. That is the lore of your compulsion. That's the feeling inside. Right. Don't let that get the best of you. Go to the bathroom. Stick with that uncomfortable feeling for 10 minutes. It's not going to feel natural for you, but that's okay. And then and, go and talk with the other. And now, it was magic. It changed the, it changed the dynamic. Yeah. Sure. Now, let, let me ask you this. If you're the party that you have observed in your relationship that your partner um, is volatile and that they need that bathroom break. Yeah. Uh, how do you uh, approach suggesting that to them? Because it's, it's kind of like time out for young kids. Oh, I don't. But the I would kids, not advise it. Yeah. They, they, they reject time out. They just get right. more angry often. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's a dangerous thing to do, to say, um, you know, to your boss, uh, I think you're getting a little too emotional, boss. I, I think you need a break. <laughs> uh, you know, you better start looking for your next job. Uh, no, I think the better idea, I mean, you, I, the only person I really have power over in a negotiation is myself. Right. Uh, you know, even my kids have proven that I don't have power over them. You know? um, but that's actually an advantage in a way. You know, because one thing that one can do then is if, if, if this is the two colleagues at work, you're noticing your boss is starting to get more and more emotional. Say, you know what, boss, I'm sorry, but I think I need a break right now. I need a few minutes to get my thoughts together, you know, and I hope this is okay with you. So I'm sort of taking responsibility for helping to manage the dynamic between us. I'm not putting the onus on the other person. So we have more power in our negotiations than we often think. I once worked for a man that is pretty close to what you're describing in this boss who loses his. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm sitting here thinking, because I'm holding your book, maybe I should have just walked in and handed him your book, you know, uh, negotiating the non-negotiable. But he'd have probably thrown it at me as soon as he read the subtitle, How to Resolve Your Most Emotionally Charged Conflicts. Okay, number three in our five. Well, number three is taboos. And these are social prohibitions. These are the things we're not supposed to say. We're not supposed to talk about in a relationship. We're not supposed to do, or in a family, or even a business, the things we're not supposed to feel. It becomes taboo. And if you feel that thing you're not supposed to feel, the system will punish you. You know, oh, you're one of those emotional people? That's not how our organization works. <laughs> or um, in the home context, you know, don't hug dad. You know, dad does not like the hug. It becomes taboo. And some of these things are fine. They can actually be helpful, some taboos. But sometimes they are extremely problematic. You know, take the example of alcoholism in the family. You know, don't talk to mom about her drinking habit. And it becomes taboo to do so. And in a sense, it can make sense. You know, one storyline is, well, if you tell mom... Mom, you have a serious, you know, problem here. You're suffering from a disease. The response sometimes is the mother, you know, or whoever it is, father, whomever, uh, right. threatening to hurt themselves. You know, don't tell me I have a problem. I'll take care of this. You know how. Oh, okay. That there, I mean, so there's some danger in breaching a taboo. But there are ways around it. So in the book, in, that, in the chapter on taboos, I talk about what I call the ACT framework, A-C-T three ways that you can deal with a taboo. One, you can just accept it. You know, so you might go, okay, I know mom has a drinking problem, but if I raise the issue, that's more dangerous than not raising it. I will uncomfortably accept it. The C in ACT stands for chiseling it away. You chisel it away. Maybe you don't approach mom directly, but you talk to her physician. And you say, doc, can you help me out? Can you talk to my mother? She's killing herself. She's killing her health. And the T in ACT is tear it down. 
this is mom coming home from work, the whole family's there, and there's a quote-unquote intervention, right? So that's, that's the most dangerous approach in a way uh, because it's more confrontational. But the big point is that one wants to, again, be mindful, to use your words, to recognize that there's a taboo that is impeding better communication, a better relationship, and then to think through, well, what are the options for trying to tear the, for trying to deal with this taboo? Accept it, chisel it, tear it down. What do I do? Right, and I, I guess of the three options, when you if you were dealing with an alcoholic in that nature, you probably wouldn't. You would be better to get an outside person, would you not? I, I, I'd hesitate to give my own personal advice here. I think, you know, I, I, you know, you'd want to talk with someone who is gotcha. deep professionally yeah. in that. Uh, but I think, you know, in any situation, you have these three different options in front of you. Uh, I, 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 my, my own personal instinct would agree with you. I would agree with you that you do want to have uh, professional assistance in that kind of situation. Somebody really understands the situation. Dr. Priest something. Okay. Uh, Number four. Number four is an assault on the sacred. The idea here, so these are all things that tend to lure us toward tribalistic ways of thinking, us versus them mindsets. And the moment I assault something that you believe is sacred to you, whether religious or secular, all of a sudden you hate me. so uh, it, it could be anything, you know. So I remember a, um, when my book first came out, um, the um, hardback version, I was giving a talk at Microsoft, and about probably 150 people in the audience, and then it was being live-streamed to another 500 or so. I was nervous. And at one point, I heard exactly what I said, but I turned to somebody in the audience and said something to the lines of, so what's it like to work here at Google? Google. <laughs> said Google instead of Microsoft. And this, these are, you know, this is like sibling rivalry between Microsoft and Google. The moment I said, you know, this person was working at Google, you could feel the tension rise in the room. And it was as though, for at least some in the room, I had assaulted the sacred. And I started thinking about it, and we talked about it with the group, but I started thinking about it in my head that really, you know, even the institution within, you, within which you work, can start to take on a sacred feel. Microsoft, they have their sacred gods, Bill Gates. You know, they have their sacred language, the computer language, their sacred communities online. All of a sudden, I come in and I accuse. You know, I'm almost sacrilegious in my uh, comments, and I suffered for it. You know, we, we used it as a learning moment, uh, but that was an assault on the sacred. And I think, even in the United States right now, uh, back to the conversation from earlier, Republicans and Democrats, each side seems to be crafting a narrative that they're then claiming as sacred. And for the other side to criticize anything about, uh, you know, one party's narrative then becomes an assault on the sacred. You get this tribalism, you know, of the worst kind, like we're seeing in D.C. So let me see if I've got this, if I really understand this one. You say that you're going to put a U.S. embassy in Palestine. That just made it much more difficult to ever negotiate with the Palestinians. Assault Uh, on the sacred. Well, I mean, that that idea is generally exactly correct. Yes. So um, each side has its own narrative. Each side in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as an example, has their own sacred beliefs, and should an external party or a party on the other side, or even in one's own side, criticize that that which is conceived of as sacred, then you get an emotional earthquake. That's right. And so, I mean, I think the way around this is to really work to respect that which each side holds as sacred. Uh, And that often means speaking in the language that that any particular party believes holds the sacred, um, which can be uncomfortable. Um, but, but if we want cooperation between sides, whether Israelis and Palestinians or, Israel, or um, Republicans and Democrats, they each need to respect that which the other side holds as sacred. And that doesn't mean that you're giving in on any particular issue. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength because it's promoting cooperation. 
Promoting cooperation is really what negotiation is about, is it not? Oh, that, that's my intended consequence. You know, some people like to spoil, you know, agreements and negotiations. But my sense is most of the time cooperation is the best route forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, if people conceive of negotiation as an adversarial game, it's me versus you. And I think that's just the wrong approach. You know, negotiation really is about the two of us working side by side together on our shared differences. It's the Republicans the bottom... and the Democrats. Yes, sorry, sorry. Yes, please. No, I was just going to say that's the bottom line I took out of your book. It, it, negotiation is really about cooperation. It isn't about the adversarial who won, who lost. Exactly. And I, I think the problem of in, in negotiating the non-negotiable, what I'm really saying is that exactly that, and that the deeper problem of negotiation is that once our identity, once everything we believe in starts to feel threatened by the other side, there are all of these emotional forces that start pulling us away from cooperation, even when cooperation makes sense. Right. And so it's, it's trying to help people become aware of all of these, uh, you know, sort of inner demons pulling us downward. And if we can counteract them, we can start nurturing and cultivating our better angels. Sometimes we need to negotiate with ourselves. Uh, what's the fifth one? We've got, you know, four of them down. What's number five? Identity politics. Identity politics. And this is the idea of using identity as a source of manipulation. Uh, it's often used that way, actually. Uh, so this is, for example, um, Milosevic in Serbia saying, we are all one and we're going to come together and we're, we're going to seek redemption for our suffering and the loss of our battle some 500 years earlier. He's using identity to bring a group together, but it's identity against another group. It's, a, it's an us-versus-them mentality that's being nurtured or cultivated um, in that situation. We see it in its opposite form as well. Someone like Nelson Mandela, who, you know, after 27 years in prison, comes out and he says, we are not white, we are not black, or sorry, we are white, we are black, we are all one, Ubuntu. We stand together. He's using identity politics as well, connecting people around a shared identity that's working toward a better future, toward a more cooperative form of coexistence. I think the danger... Oh, sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to say, in a conflict between two people, not two nations, how do you see that play out? Well, I mean, let's, let's take the simple form again of a couple having a conflict. Uh, I mean, to me, that's the most simple laboratory there is. <laughs> and you see identity politics in a problematic form when, for example, uh, the couple gets into the, you know, gets into a fight over, I don't know, you didn't do the dishes, uh, whatever it is. What happens next? Often, each spouse will call up their own, you know, their own. Um, uh, family members, and what if the family members then say, oh, my gosh, you are so right, Dan. You know, your spouse is terrible. How could she? My wife calls up, you know, her uh, mother-in-law, right. her mother in that situation. Same thing. Identity politics in that situation just becomes a problem. It doesn't help our relationship, the relationship between my, myself and my spouse in that example. Uh, the other way of dealing with shaping identity is to say, you know what, we're all part of the same family. How are we going to deal with this? Let's work, you know, let's figure this out together. And again, it, it becomes that we mentality trumping tribalism, and it can change the nature of a family dynamic. It can change the nature of a national dynamic as well. That's precisely what I wanted, what I was trying to elicit from you. You see so many times in, in family marriage counseling situations where you have two sides of a family that you're dealing with, not just uh, a yeah. husband and wife. Uh, yeah. Very important point, sir. What's the single biggest piece of advice you would offer to anyone stuck in conflict? Appreciate. <laughs> Appreciate that other side's perspective. Yeah, I, I think the most deadly assumption of negotiation is to, to get into that tribal mindset. I'm right, they're wrong, and that's that. And the single most powerful tool I found, whether it's been working with heads of state 
or you know grieving families appreciate the other side's perspective understand and see the merit behind their perspective once you see that you see the light everything from there becomes exponentially easier appreciate it. You know, I wanted to ask you so many more questions, and I, especially I wanted to discuss with you the mythos of identity, but we're about out of time, and I want to give you the opportunity to tell all of our listeners how they can learn more about you, your work, and obtain your book. Sure. So, I, so first, thank you so much. It's, it's a wonderful pleasure to talk with you, to learn from you. Uh, so danshapiroglobal.com is the website. Uh, so danshapiroglobal.com. Dot com and my my book negotiating the non-negotiable is just releasing right now in softback and there's a new first chapter there are a number of worksheets in the book to help people make these kinds of concepts practical so you can actually put them to use in helping you in your own lives uh, but Dan Shapiro Global is where you can find out more information the book is negotiating the non-negotiable Thank you, Professor. I want to thank you for sharing with us, and I want to thank all of you out there for joining our show today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And please tell your friend, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. The views expressed on this program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and not necessarily those of KKNW, its management, or other advertisers. Contests are the responsibility of the host of this program and not KKNW. This is Alternative Talk 1150 AM, KKNW Seattle, and KVRQ 98.9 HD3 Seattle.